this handout I'm giving you, we're not going to um, spend a lot of time reading through those, I don't think tonight. You know me, you never know where class is going to go. What, I'm, what uh, Nicole is handing out, there's just some scripture references. They're not typed out fully. Um, but basically what that handout is, is um, a bunch of the earliest Christian writings we have talking about the Eucharist as Catholics understand it. And one of the points I'm going to make to you, um, not the main point tonight, but um, tonight we're going to talk about the Eucharist and it's the center of everything. Is the absolute beating heart of Catholicism. And one of the points I will make to you is that Christians have always believed this from day one. And you will hear different people make different claims about it. People who go and read and do their homework generally tend to become Catholic. Not always, but generally. Okay, we have in prayers. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we bless you and praise you tonight. Lord, we pray that you would guide us closer to you. Pray for a deeper love of your presence in the Eucharist. Um, bless those here, those who are at home. Um, give us your spirit and your peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so before we jump into Eucharist, um, some more. A couple of logistical kind of questions. Or points on questions. So we're getting close. Uh, it's close to decision time if you're thinking about becoming Catholic. And as I have said, uh, if you're not there yet, that's okay. There's some decisions in life, it's, if you're not there, it's okay to wait. Um, but we're getting close to that time. So uh, there's a couple of different groups in here, right? So if... Um, if you are a catechumen, <clears throat> meaning you have never been baptized, um, or if you're someone who is baptized in a Protestant church, um, so you'd be a candidate for those two groups. If you're going to become Catholic. The moment that will happen, and Stephanie sent out a schedule with yes. us tonight. Yes. That will happen at the Easter Vigil, which is March 5th? Uh, March 8th. The Easter Vigil is April 3rd. I was close. <laughs> 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 yeah. And I also included the description of catechumen candidate, all these, so you can look at that to confirm what you want. So um, that's the night that people become Catholic as adults. Um, it's, it's the most powerful liturgy of the year. It's the, in Catholicism, this is the highest moment of the entire year. It's beautiful. It's long. This Mass will be three, three and a half hours. Um, we don't mess around. Um, the other group in here that you might be in here is if you were baptized Catholic but you were never confirmed, you're, then you're a confirmandi. If you are a confirmandi, 
We don't, we don't confirm you at the Easter Vigil. And here's why, is because uh, if you were baptized Catholic, that the Easter Vigil essentially is making people part of the family. If you haven't received confirmation, you are, when, at your baptism, you are already brought into the family. And so we make a distinction. If so, but if you need confirmation, if you've been coming to this, and you just need to be confirmed, you were baptized Catholic, but you need to be confirmed, this is going to happen on Palm Sunday. At the noon mass. It's really powerful, and what's cool about that is that means that you'll be fully initiated for all of the liturgies of Holy Thursday, where the Last Supper happens, Good Friday, and then for Easter. So, the Easter vigil is going to be at 8 p.m., is that right? Yep. Questions about that? Yep. Okay. 8 p.m. to midnight. 8 p.m. to midnight. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> it, it, it will be awesome. Cake after. <laughs> <laughs> cake after. Wait, There's cake. <laughs> On your way out, and And then for the rest of, if you have questions about this, you know, feel free to ask anytime. Then, um, Nicole, you're going to need a razor really. But anyway, um, for the rest of Lent, the, the church makes a big distinction for these three groups. Thank you. That's not an eraser, but I'll take it. Um, the, uh, for the, Patrick said he, he doesn't like beer. And he hates fish, and this beer has a fish on it, so he's like, that's the last thing on earth I would ever drink. Um, so, it's pretty good. Um, the, the church makes a distinction between these groups. So we saw the confirmandi. If you're a candidate, if you were baptized in another Christian church, baptism is so broad, and the sacraments belong to Christ, and the church is his body. Thank you, that'll work. Um, and and it's... In a nuanced sense, we also consider you kind of already part of the family. Even if, if you were baptized as a Calvinist or a Baptist, or, you know, Presbyterian, a Lutheran, even though we have our disagreements, baptism is what is a sacrament that makes you a part of the body of Jesus Christ. We recognize those baptisms as totally valid. And so that's why it's a little different. But we're going to have these things coming up called scrutinies. And what's going to happen is through Lent, and the first thing we're going to do is not this coming Sunday, right, but the, ne the following? Yep, so uh, it's Sunday, February 21st. Fair enough. So 21st of February 12th. 12th? Mm -hmm. Not the 21st. No, 21st at 12th. Oh. Um, 21st of February is what's called the right of election. And here's what that is. You know how we talk about stages on the way to marriage? Right? If you're dating someone and on the first date you're like, what do you want to name our second child? You would be like, Brian. Oh, I'm just kidding. You would be like, this is weird. Get me out of here. That's creepy. There's stages on the way. And thank you. Um, 
the uh, right of election is a pretty big step. Right of election, I would say, is something like engagement. The church doesn't use that language, but I'm just trying to use an analogy. So if you're like, I'm not sure if I want to be Catholic or not, at the end of the day, only you can decide this. Um, but it's, it's a bigger step. Alexio is a Latin word to choose. And what it means is that the right of election, the church recognizes you as someone that God has chosen to enter into his church. Usually the way we do this is we go to the cathedral and there's a special liturgy with the archbishop. Because of COVID, they're not doing that, which is tragic. Um, but we'll do it here at Lourdes. Um, and it's only for these two groups, catechumens and candidates. Because if you're baptized Catholic, you're already part of the family. So we'll do that. If you're, what you need to do is if you're going to come into the church, if you're, you think that's where you're going to go, and again, if you're not 100%, make a decision. If you change your mind one way or the other, it's not the end of the world. Uh, it certainly isn't. Um, but you need to let Stephanie know where you're at with that. Questions? Yeah, Michelle. Um, Just did that. that Sorry. That I blame you. Oh, I have next. So, if you're going to an annulment, yep. My friend. Yes. So, great question. So, with marriages that need to be annulled, what we want to do is that. Um, we want to make sure you're ready for the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to be blunt about this. So in marriage, the reason marriage is different than other sins and areas of contention is because it's ongoing. And so if you're in a, a what we would call an irregular marriage, which means either that one of you is Catholic and got married outside the church, or you need an annulment, we want to bless that before you come into the church. Because the presumption is that you have an active sexual life. And if your marriage is not squared with the church, we want to get that right first. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yes. I have a question about baptism yes. for a baby. Or for no, a baby. Not, not baptism. Godparents. Godparents. Yes. yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. But can... A godparent be one person? Or yep. is it? Okay. Yep, so godparents, and by the way, if you're being baptized or you're being confirmed, you need a sponsor, and we would love for them to start coming to Mass with you on Sundays. We would also love for them to be at this class if they're able to. Obviously, this is a different year. If they can't, we understand. But we would love for that to happen. A sponsor. What is a sponsor? A sponsor, and I, I think I've said this, but a sponsor is not hey, you're my brother and I love you. I know you haven't gone to church in 30 years, but I want to tell you that I love you, right? That's not a sponsor. A sponsor is someone who is an active Catholic, who is someone that's going to support you in your faith. What most of us do when we choose godparents, like when people choose godparents for their kids, they're like, oh, I love my sister so much. I want her to be godparents. And I'm like, <clears throat> 
if your sister hates the Catholic Church, you probably shouldn't be a godparent. Godparents are ones who are there to witness the sacrament, but they're there to be a model and a support in the child's faith. If you don't know someone like that, again, you need to talk to myself or Steph or Nicole or one of us, Colin or Beth over there or Patrick. We will help you. We will find someone who would love to walk with you and love on you and just be a part of that journey with you. Okay? Does that answer it? Yes. Okay. Anybody else? That's my fault. That's, Sorry. It's, I'm a rookie. You can always come. <laughs> you can always come if you're a confirmandi. But again, you're part of the family. So we don't. And so we'll talk more about the scrutinies. I don't, we've talked enough about this stuff tonight. Scrutinies are easy. We're going to call you up in front of the church and we're going to ask you what your biggest sin is and you'll tell them. Just kidding. We will call you in front of the church, and it'll be like, are you resolved to follow Jesus more? And you'll be like, I am. And they'll be like, okay, great. Now I go to breaking up in the Word. It's, it's really easy. So, okay. I am a horrible person. <laughs> You're like, I knew you were hiding that. I knew that was going to come at some point. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Um, <clears throat> Eucharist, this is everything. This is life-changing. This is, in my mind, everything it means not just to be a Catholic, but to be a human being. Um, and to preface what we're going to do tonight, I, I want to start with one theological point that is stolen from Pope Benedict XVI, who I am, he is like one of my heroes. Love him to death. If you ever come to my house, there is a giant picture of Pope Benedict in my house. Um, so Pope Benedict, in one of his essays... Um, he talks about how in the Old Testament, if you have a very close relationship with someone, right, and, and someone you love, we don't usually use this word too much, but the way that the scriptures use a word for a very intimate, close relationship with someone is the scripture uses the word communion. Already getting emotional. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go tonight. Um, is a communion. So in Catholicism, we talk about the communion of saints. Um, the Old Testament talks about that. that There can be a communion between persons where you have a very close relationship with someone. And the Old Testament word for that is Chabad. That word is used throughout the Old Testament, and it's used for this intimate communion between persons. That we're friends, maybe we're more than that, but there's a sharing of minds, there's a sharing of hearts. In a marriage, of course, there's a sharing of bodies. There is, there is a communion with each other. What Pope Benedict says, what's really fascinating is not a single time in the Old Testament is that word ever used between, for a relationship between a human being and God. So in the Old Testament, God does love you, and you can love God, 
You can be obedient to him. You can worship God. You can follow God. You can do all kinds of things with God. But there is no communion. Not a single time in the, all of the Old Testament is that used. But it is in the New Testament. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. So that's Hebrew. The Greek translation of that word is a word you might have heard before, especially if you're coming from a Christian background. The Greek word is koinonia. So koinonia can be translated in a couple different ways, and it is by different people. And um, I'm going to turn to one passage here in 1 Corinthians. Um, so, koinonia, sometimes it's translated as fellowship. It can be translated as partnership. Or communion. Communion is the thing I want most in my entire life. And what I would submit to you is, is what you want the most in your entire life. And that word, right, what it means is it means that you want to be so close to someone, different people, but also to God, in a way that is not shallow. Um, it's a deep, it's also translated as participation sometimes. But it's a deep, it's, it's what Jesus says in John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he doesn't use the word communion there, koinonium in Greek. But he said, but he uses the concept. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he says, abide, menein in Greek. Abide in me, and I in And so probably in your life, you've had, you've had someone you've loved so much that you, just, you can't get close enough to them. You wish it could be even more intimate, even closer. Which, by the way, just another reason why I'm like, the, all this stuff just makes sense to me. It all comes together. This speaks to the deepest knowledge and the deepest desires of my heart. Um, Catholicism satisfies my mind goes far beyond what my mind can understand um, but it also speaks profoundly right, to the desires of the human heart so what Pope Benedict says he says what the New Testament is is the koinonia that is in Jesus Christ that's what the New Testament is and I say this a lot there's different ways Catholicism is somewhat like a spider's web. You could approach it from different angles and everything touches everything. Um, and so a lot of times I'll say, well, this is what it means to be a Christian and this is what it means to be a Christian. And it's all true. It's like a spider's web. But this is what it means to be a Christian. is a communion that I have with Jesus Christ and with him 
because I have communion with him, I have communion with you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we've talked a lot about this chapter. And remember we talked about the whole paradigm. We'll get to that again in a second. The whole um, Egypt New Testament thing, right? We talk about Pharaoh and Satan and sin and slavery and all those things line up. That's the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10. And what Paul is doing in that chapter is he's talking about the Eucharist. And he's setting up his whole treatment of what communion is in the church. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, chapter 14, or verse 14, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, beloved, and what he's done, doing, he's talked about how, remember, there's, um, there's idolatry in the desert with the golden calf. And what's happening in Corinth is that Christians are still worshiping false gods. And so he's saying if you're a Christian, you cannot worship idols. Can't do it. And he's saying, remember the Old Testament story? It's about us. So then in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not? Sometimes lectors get this wrong. It drives me crazy. It's a really important phrase to get right. Paul's asking a question. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not? And in this translation it says, a participation in the blood of Christ. What do you think that word participation is? Koinonia in Greek. So, the cup of blessing which we bless, we're going to talk about what that is, hopefully tonight. See how far we get. When we do, it's going to blow your freaking mind. <laughs> he says it's a koinonia. It's a communion in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not... Right? And when a deacon or a reader says, it is not, I'm like, I'm going to strangle you. Right? Which God probably frowns upon. Um, the bread which we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So you, you remember that song, one bread, one body. One Lord of all. Yeah. Um, what Paul is saying here, and I think of this all the time, we'll get, and tonight we're going to flush this out, I hope, in a powerful way. Um, when you receive communion with Jesus, you are in communion with everyone else who Sometimes at Mass, and I know I'm weird, I'm a priest, but I look around sometimes and I think after communion, that literally all of us in that church, the same blood runs through all of our veins. We're brought, we're brought together in Christ. Everything it means to be a Christian is about communion with God. 
right? And if you're coming again from a non-Christian background, or a non-Catholic background, I'm sorry, um, we all know, right, what Christ came to do was to heal the division, the chasm between God and man. Jesus' whole mission is to fix this divide. It's to bring about communion. But it's not just a communion so someday I can die and go to heaven. It's that intimate participation, right? Again, that verse I love to quote, Galatians 2.20, St. Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. That's koinonia. Okay, questions about that before we jump to understanding the Last Supper? Okay. Well, here we go. So, um, so we've done all the parallels. Do you guys need them again or no? No? Between Exodus and the yes? No. No. Oh, you guys need the parallels? Alright, everybody close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. So there's no one looking at you. How many people think we should do the Egypt and New Testament parallels again? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Is that the Exodus and New Testament? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so here we go. So um, last time, if you remember, we talked about how Jesus set up a secret code word because he wanted to protect the location of the Last Supper. He knows that Judas will betray him. He knows that he's going to the cross. But Jesus goes to the cross on his terms and in his way. And he refuses to go to the cross before he has celebrated the Eucharist. Remember also that Josephus tells us, the near contemporary of Christ, that on the Feast of Passover, there are roughly a million people in Jerusalem every year. Josephus is off. His numbers are notoriously untrustworthy. But it's a huge crowd. And in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus and the apostles stay in Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And the reason they do that is because there's no room in Jerusalem. Right? The city is overflowing with pilgrims. So, Jesus, right, this is not a haphazard thing. This is not something where he's like, you know, you know when you're driving and you're driving to see your friend and you're like, oh crap, the Broncos game got out and I'm going to be on I-25 for three days. It's not that. Jesus is an observant Jew. Passover is one of the three big feasts of the year. He goes there intentionally and he chooses the night of the Last Supper and the night of his death very clearly. Very clearly. Okay. One last piece of context is John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to that. If not, no worries. But in John chapter 6, John 6 is a Catholic joke. If you're coming from a Protestant background, the Catholic joke is that Protestants somehow have a hole in their Bible at John 6. And we kind of laugh about that. John 6 is an entire chapter where Jesus goes off about the Eucharist. He doesn't do that about anything. 
there's, there's almost nowhere in all of Scripture that has as extensive a treatment on one subject as John chapter 6 does. Um, so we're not going to read it all, of course. A couple highlights, though. So, um, at the beginning of John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men. He has five loaves and two fish. And if we had more time, we'd talk about how this section is very related to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But that's for another time, which will probably never happen. Um, but he starts there, and then people are like talking about all this bread. Why does Jesus always talk about the bread? There's something about bread in Jesus. Why is that all over the place? So then in verse 22... Uh, Jesus gives us called the bread of life discourse. Um, and here's, the, here's one key thing. Back in verse 4, so chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So Jesus is going to spend an entire huge section in John 6 talking about the Eucharist. He does that on the feast of Passover. This, my, my brothers and sisters, is exactly one year before the Last Supper. Jesus spends three years in public ministry, and when you study this closely, this is one year before the Last Supper. And John starts this whole chapter, he says it's Passover. And Jesus has this huge discourse about the bread of life. Okay, so there's all kinds of things that happen, but uh, to highlight a few things, Jesus starts talking about the bread which came down from heaven. If you're a Jew and Jesus starts talking about the bread which came down from heaven, what do you think of? The manna. And in this section, it becomes explicit. Jesus is going to talk about the manna. And he says, um, he's going to talk about how, let's see. He says, I, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay. It's pretty clear already. The Jews don't believe him. And they push back. And then when you study the Greek in this passage, Jesus gets more and more explicit. Um, and and the, the, the words he uses to eat, right? You know when you like see a little kid and you're like, you're so cute, I could just eat you up. Which is kind of a weird phrase, if you think about it. But we use that phrase. And so, so people try to take that kind of thing and they say, well, when Jesus says, eat my flesh, he really means believe in him. And I'm like, 
how is eating my flesh a way of saying believe in me? I'm like, that's weird. That doesn't make, nowhere else does that happen. That makes no sense. You're just trying not to be Catholic. Um, but, so Jesus gets more explicit. And the Jews, so the Jews go on. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Notice, they, they understand what Jesus is saying. They're like, how could you give us your flesh to eat? That's crazy. So Jesus said to them, truly, and this is one of my favorite verses on the Eucharist, John 6, 53. Truly, truly, when Jesus says that, in Scripture he does that a number of times, it's an oath. So he either says, amen, amen, or truly, truly. When you see Jesus doing that, he does it about a number of things. He's taking an oath. He's basically saying, I swear to God, this is true. It's John 6.53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And here's where it couldn't get any more explicit than this. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, Koinonia, and I in him. Really cool background to this is part of the reason the Jews are offended is because God forbids the drinking of blood in the Old Testament. Uh, specifically Leviticus 17. Jews are forbidden from doing that. And the reason when God talks about how you cannot ever drink blood, the reason the Old Testament gives is it says, because the life of the thing is in the blood. And here Jesus says, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. Okay, so he goes on and on and on. And one of the highlights at the end of this is at the end of this passage, one year before the Last Supper, and think about this. Think about this. At the Last Supper, Jesus is going to sit at table with his 12 apostles, and he's going to take bread, and he's going to say, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body. And I always think, I just imagine one of the apostles sitting there going, Remember last year at Passover? Remember when Jesus went on that absolute tirade about how unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you cannot have true life within you? No mistake. Okay, but at the end, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. Tons of people leave. Pattern in the scriptures is that when Jesus says something that people misunderstand, he corrects it and he explains. And usually the way it happens is with the apostles. So like he'll speak to the to crowds and they don't get it. And Jesus takes his disciples into the house and he explains the parable. He doesn't do that here. 
He doesn't do that. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, let me explain I didn't mean it. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> Here's what he says. He says, will you also go away? Are you going to leave too? Jesus is going to let him. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter basically says here, Lord, where else am I going to go? I don't get this. It's a hard teaching. Where else am I going to go? I believe in you. So that sets the scene. That chapter, if you have not read that chapter, I, I will challenge you, go read John chapter 6. It is clear, it is painfully obvious, it is forceful. What Jesus says there about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And that's going to set us up for the Last Supper. So before we jump to that, though, any last questions on any of that? Yeah, Jim. So can you kind of go through the theme, Protestants tend to hit the section where it talks about Spirit and life. Spirit and life. Yep. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's good. Okay. So, in verse 62, and this is a good question, so I should repeat for the camera. Protestants tend to focus on another section in there, and let me read that section to you, and what's the Catholic response? So, verse 62, um, and just before that, Jesus says, um, uh, He says, Are you scandalized at this? Some translations say different translation mine does the greek word there is scandal on scandal it's a good translation of scandal on are you scandalized at this then what if you were to see the son of man ascending where he was before it is the spirit that gives life the flesh is of no avail so the surprises lash onto that phrase the flesh is of no avail And there's, there's two basic points. Um, if anybody wants more of this, Brant Petrie has the best treatment of this I've ever seen. Um, he's a Catholic author. Petrie. And he, he goes through this in depth and shows the history of interpretation um, at a scholarly level. And he does that in a book called... Um, Jesus in the Last Supper. Okay, but here's what's going on there. Jesus makes reference to the Son of Man. He talks about the Son of Man ascending. And sorry, this is a little technical. I'll give one really easy answer after this. This is the more technical answer. Does anybody know, son of, when, it, when it is in Scripture, there's a very famous scene of a Son of Man ascending, and it's not the ascension of Jesus. It, that's the fulfillment, but very good. So this is Daniel chapter 7. Um, so Jesus points us to the book of Daniel. Um, 
And he talks about the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. And it's a little technical, but the point that Jesus is making here is that his flesh is heavenly flesh. When the Son of Man ascends, it's not like we're cannibals. For some of you, that might feel weird. If you're coming Catholic and you're like, that's weird, I have to eat Jesus' flesh and blood. What Jesus wants us to understand is this is his heavenly flesh. Um, and then he says, he says, the flesh is of no avail. It is the spirit that gives life. Well, this is almost certainly a reference to Ezekiel 30, 36 or 37. The Valley of Dry Bones. Seven. So Ezekiel 37, there's a, a resurrection scene. And <clears throat> again, this is a little bit in the weeds, but Ezekiel 37, these bones come, they, they, they're all dead. It's a Valley of Dry Bones. There's all this death. And God says, uh, can these bones live? Ezekiel, and he calls Ezekiel, by the way, he calls him son of man. Can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know, God, only you know. And he brings flesh, and all this flesh comes on the bones, but they're still not alive. And then the next phrase in John 6, it says, it is the spirit that gives life. It is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail. In Ezekiel 37, the, when the flesh comes to the bones, it's still dead. It is the spirit that has to come to give them life. And Jesus says, and here's, here's the clincher. I probably shouldn't have gone into all that. Here's the really easy answer. Um, Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If you want to say that, and what most Protestants do, because they don't want to believe in the Eucharist, is they say, well, Jesus didn't mean it. This makes zero sense. So basically, take that interpretation. What you have to do is you say, well, you know that whole chapter where I just went off and said all these things? Just kidding. And that's essentially the argument. I was just kidding. None of that is really true. I just It's really about the spirit. I didn't mean any of that stuff I said about this. That can't be in the case. It simply can't. Jesus doesn't do things like that. Um, what he's saying is you have to interpret these words. You have to understand that this is the heavenly flesh of Christ. Okay. If anybody wants more of that, come see me. I'll copy the, the chapter of that. Brand Petrie just goes in detail through that, and he shows what the what's happening in John 6 with those specific verses. Anybody else? Other questions? Yeah. A question I've had is just like, um, with transubstantiation, I know you're going to get there, so yes. don't worry, go ahead, but like the difference between that being like physical and spiritual and yeah, all that. Yeah, we'll get to transubstantiation. Maybe not tonight, but bring that up if we don't get to it, because that's important. Yeah. This might, you can cut this off, but a Facebook question is, um, 
what was the significance of the man carrying the water jug yep. that disciples were talking were to talk to about the place of the So the the point about the water jug, um, I'm trying to remember which gospel that's in. Let's see. I want to say it's Mark. Yep. So this is Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want to have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the householder, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The significance of this is that Jesus is protecting the location of the Last Supper. And back in John 6, we were just talking about, at the end of that chapter, it says that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would who did not believe and who would betray him. So there's this hint that someone who doesn't believe in the Eucharist is going to betray Jesus, which is what happens at the Last Supper with Judas. So Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. He refuses to let that happen before the Last Supper. And the water jar, the reason that's significant, Jesus doesn't say, right, if, I, if you asked me, you said, hey, FB, where's class next week? And I said, go to Our Lady of Lourdes, Look for a man in a pink suit, right? And I, I mean, that's ridiculous, but whatever. That would stand out. Follow him and go wherever he leads. So a man carrying a water jar stands out because in the ancient world, men don't carry water. So he would have stood out in the crowd and said, Jesus says, follow him, go wherever he goes. And when you get there, say this. He gives a code word to the two disciples Say this to the owner of the house. So Jesus, the, the significance is Jesus is protecting the Last Supper. Okay. So here we go. So let's let's talk about it. So if you, we'll make our baseline Luke's account, which is in Luke twenty-two. Okay, so where did, how to start this. So here's what I'm going to teach you tonight. This is my whole life. This is my soul. This is everything. Um, what the Catholic Church teaches is that when you go to Mass and when you receive the Eucharist, you are mystically present at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And what we believe as Catholics is that the cross and the Eucharist are the same thing. I never knew this when I was in college. Most Catholics do not know this. If you understand this, it will change your life. It will change the way you go to church. It will, you will stop asking questions about, I mean, you'll still ask whether the homily was good or not, but you'll care a lot less. 
You will be far less bored at church. It will, it will change everything. The Last Supper and the crucifixion are the same thing. Um, so, here's what happened. So, on the Feast of Passover is when Jesus has the Last Supper. On Passover, in Exodus 12, are the instructions for that. You have to take a lamb. It has to be a lamb without blemish. Without blemish. Okay, that's Exodus 12. How is that fulfilled in Christ? Jesus is without sin. Um, you take a lamb without blemish. You slaughter it. There's actually evidence, by the way. This is crazy. If you ever want a great book we have upstairs, that same author, Brant Petrie, it's called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. He actually shows that when the way they killed lambs in the first century for Passover was they put them on two stakes in the shape of a cross. It's crazy. Um, you have a lamb without blemish. Jesus is without sin. You have to kill in the evening. John 19 is a pains to show you. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. He is killed in the evening. Then Moses commands us in Exodus 12 that we have to eat its flesh that night. Um, when we talked about how Jesus, right, the reason it's called Passover in Exodus is the blood of the lamb is on the doorposts, and in the night, the angel of death passes through Egypt, and when it sees the blood of the lamb on a doorpost, death passes over. So in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, St. Paul can say, Jesus is our Passover. So we get to the Last Supper. There are five accounts of the Last Supper in the New Testament. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Five accounts of the Last Supper. The center of the Passover meal, the absolute center that happens there, is the eating of a lamb. It is everything. Um, so you, have you guys seen The Passion of the Christ? The very beginning of that movie, super powerful scene, the very beginning of that movie, Mary Magdalene runs in to marry the mother of God. Um, sorry, it happens every year. Here we go. Thank you, Mother. Um, Mary Magdalene runs into Mary, Mother of God, and I forget who says the first line, who says the second, but one of them says, why is tonight different from every other night? And the other one says, because we were slaves in Egypt, and God ransomed us with a strong hand. That line is from the Passover meal. Mel Gibson took that. That is from the ritual the Jewish ritual of Passover. And during the Passover meal, the leader of the meal asks that. He says, why is tonight different from every other night? And the people at the table respond, because we were slaves in Egypt. Sorry. We were slaves in Egypt, and God brought us out with a strong hand. The Jews expected 
that on the night of Passover, the Messiah would bring a final redemption. They expected it to happen, that there would be a new exodus. We've talked all about this, right? The, the, the New Testament all over the place talks about the new exodus. And uh, Jesus, right, 40 days in the wilderness. Um, in, exodus, or in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus is on the tra- Mount of Transfiguration, he talks about his exodus that would happen in Jerusalem. Um, it's just, it's all over the place. Okay. So, on that night, uh, why is this night different from every other night? Because we were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord redeemed us with a strong hand. That night, Jesus has his last supper. Okay. So, at the meal, oh, there's five accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 1 Corinthians 11. Five accounts of the New Testament. The center of the Passover lamb, or the Passover meal is the Passover lamb. Guess how many times a Passover lamb is mentioned at the Last Supper? In the New Testament. Not a single time. Why? Because Jesus is the Passover. What Jesus does, we've talked about this, is he takes Old Testament things, he elevates and transforms them in himself. So he is the Lamb of God. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. So he's at the Last Supper. One year after the Bread of Life Discourse in John chapter 6. He's at supper, and Jesus says, um, take, he takes a piece of bread, take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. There's so much here. Okay. Oh, I'm glad I remember this. One other thing. Um, before we get, we'll go back to that in a second. What's the what's the word for? Um, well, I'm, so I'm going to play read my mind. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's a Latin word. It translates what other word? Do you remember? Testamentum is a Latin translation of a Greek word. It's the word covenant. So, in the Old Covenant, we have an Old Covenant, we have a New Covenant. Remember, covenant makes a family. It's not just a contract, it's a marriage. I am yours, you are mine. We are family. The Old Covenant for the Jews, the the moment it is culminated, it's consummated, is in Exodus 24. So the Ten Commandments, if you remember, are in chapter 20. And so those are kind of the terms of the covenant. God, I will be your God, you will be my people, you will keep my law, and I will protect you, and I will deliver you. In Exodus 24 is the sealing of the deal. In Exodus 24, Moses takes a blood of a sacrifice, and he takes half of it, and he sprinkles it on the altar, and he takes the other half, and he sprinkles it on the people. 
And it's the only time in the Old Testament, it's the only time in the Bible, where there's this phrase, the blood of the covenant. The Last Supper, Jesus says, here in Luke 22, he says, This chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Universally recognized by scripture scholars that Jesus is evoking Exodus 24 here. Now here's the kicker. If we have, if the Bible is divided into two halves, and it's divided by two covenants, how many times does Jesus speak about a covenant in his lifetime? Any guesses? How many times do you think Jesus does it? Close. Also close, but wrong. I love it when you guys are wrong. Once. Paul will talk about it a lot. Paul will talk about the new covenant a lot. Jesus in his lifetime only spoke of the new covenant once. That place is at the Last Supper. Do you begin to see like some of the weight around this, the gravity around the Last Supper? Okay, so Jesus is at the Last Supper. He is the Lamb of God. He says, take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body. Right? And here in Luke 22. And likewise, the chalice after supper saying, this chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. And I'll go on. But in verse uh, 19, right? This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At, at Mass, we'll say in memory of me. This is absolutely critical. So Jesus says, do this in memory of me. Guess what? In Exodus, Moses commands the Jews for all time are to carry out the Passover and they're to do it as a memorial. The Hebrew word there is zikaron. And the Passover is a memorial of the redemption in, in Egypt. On the night of the Last Supper, on the night of Passover, right, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And the word he uses there in Greek is a nemesis. Which is the Greek, this is Hebrew, that's Greek. Nemesis is the translation in Greek of Zikaron in Hebrew. And here's the killer. Here's the absolute kicker. Zikaron does not mean for Jews to remember something that happened in the past. It's not what it means. What it means, it literally means, is to make present something from the past. And so Jews and something called the Mishnah, which is an authoritative document for the Jews. I'll bring this quote next time because I don't think I brought it tonight. Yeah, I didn't. 
The Mishnah says that all Jews are commanded to understand themselves not as if they are the descendants of those who went through the Exodus, but that they themselves, through the Passover, have gone through the Exodus. The culmination of the Exodus, the escape from Egypt, the night of redemption is the night of Passover. On that night, Jesus takes in something good, he elevates and transforms it into the true redemption that is in him. So, in Nemesis, here's what, right, what Catholics believe. When, you go to, when we go to Mass, when I go to Mass, I don't believe I'm remembering the death of Jesus. And the Church of Jesus Christ does not believe that. The Catholic Church understands that Jesus died once for all, and that one death is made mystically present every time we celebrate Mass. We're going to flush this out some more, and there's a lot more to talk about. But real quick, pause on this. You know how like I kneel behind the altar way longer than other priests? You might not know this if you're not Catholic yet. People come to Lourdes. One of my friends, Michelle, Nicole's sister, the first time she came, I think it was the first time she came. Yeah. I don't know. First time she came, I was kneeling behind the altar, and I was down there so long, and she whispered to her husband, she's like, is he okay? <laughs> like, is, he, is Father Brian coming back up? Now, here, that doesn't mean other priests are doing it wrong. They're not. But here's why I do that. It's when, I, when I say Mass, this isn't just like a church service. The reason I kneel down there and I stay down there is I remember where I'm at. The Son of God is crucified in front of me. And if you understand this, you will never go to Mass the same way again, ever. The saints talk about this. It is all over church history. It is taught by scripture scholars going back to the second century. But we've forgotten it as a church. And so we go to church and we feel like, ah, oh, I wasn't fed because the homily wasn't great. You'll never say that again if you understand that you're at Mount Calvary when you go to church. Um, that's why I stay down there, is I remind myself of where I'm at. Okay. Jesus' last, the Last Supper, Jesus ties it to the crucifixion. And here's how he does it. So Jesus takes the bread, he identifies it as his body, and then what does he do to the bread? He breaks it. When is the body of Jesus Christ broken? It's broken on the cross. He takes a chalice... Right, by the way, these are different offerings of the Old Testament. And St. Paul will understand Jesus' crucifixion as a sacrificial offering in the temple. New offering in the new temple of the church. So Jesus, one of the offerings in the temple is called a libation. It's a drink offering. Jesus uses that language with chalice. He says, this is the chalice of my blood, which will be poured out. That's Jewish sacrificial language for an offering in the temple. When is the blood of Jesus Christ poured out? On the cross. Okay, and here's where it gets wicked cool. The Jewish Passover is a lot like Mass. If you come to Mass with me, and if I screw up, which I probably will, um, but if I skip something, you'll notice it. Because the, the Catholic Mass, right, is not something that I just kind of come up with. 
It's a prayer that we believe came from Jesus himself. It's not mine. It's not yours. It is the prayer of Christ. So I can't just kind of make it up. So if I skipped something, you would notice. You'd be like, um, FB, we were supposed to be our Father. What happened? So Jesus doesn't just skip things. The Jewish Passover meal is just like that. The Jewish Passover meal, there are things you do, there are phrases you say, there's a script. You don't deviate from it. The Jewish Passover has four cups. So when you do a Jewish Passover meal, you must drink of four cups. And I forgot my notes on the names of them. So I'm only going to remember the last two. But I'll bring the, next, I'll bring the other two next week. Um, so one, you cup, cup one, cup two, cup three, and they all have names. The name of the third cup is called the cup of blessing. That's the name of the third cup. Tonight, at the start of class, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And St. Paul says, The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? And when we hear that, we just think that's just, oh, isn't that a sweet title, the cup of blessing? That's not what it means. That's the name of the third Jewish cup of Passover. You get this right, you don't have to come to any more classes the rest of the year. Does anybody know what the fourth cup is named? Okay, we're going to be hanging for one second. There's one more cup. Here's what happens in the Last Supper. Luke 22:18. Jesus is talking about the next chalice, and he says, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine, this is so freaking cool, until the kingdom of God comes. If you're a Jewish person, there are four cups. You don't, you don't break the ritual. And so the Last Supper, Jesus says, I'm not going to drink again until the kingdom of God comes. In the Gospels, when's the moment the kingdom of God comes? It's on the cross. On the cross, right? John 12, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. That's an image of a kingly coronation when his subjects are drawn to him. But, but that passage is about the crucifixion. The moment that Jesus Christ comes to reign in hearts and minds is not when he kicks their butt with power, it's when he dies for them. On the cross, Jesus has a crown. On the cross, Jesus has above his head in the three languages that, the, that at the time people thought were the three big languages of the entire world, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, in all the languages of the world, he has proclaimed the king of the Jews. 
Mark, 16, Mark 15, the Roman centurion names him, right, the Son of God. Jesus reigns from the cross. That is the moment the kingdom of God comes. On the cross in John chapter 19, Jesus, they offer him wine mixed with gall. Why do they do that? It's a painkiller. Jesus is going to go through a brutal, horrific, painful death. They offer him a sedative. A painkiller, right? I don't know. Is a sedative the same thing as a painkiller? No. Related. Good enough. You're a priest. We'll let you go, right? <laughs> um, they offer him a painkiller because it's going to be bad. He refuses to take it. And let's go back one more second. So after the Last Supper, where does Jesus go after the Last Supper? He refuses to drink of the cup. Where does he go next? He goes to Gethsemane. What is Jesus praying in Gethsemane? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. And we just, because we don't study scripture enough, that's my job. It's not your fault, it's my job. Let's teach you guys. People just take that at face value. Jesus isn't just using random expressions. He's praying for the fourth cup to pass. Um, he prays for a cup to pass. He says, I will not drink again until the kingdom of God comes. When's the next time Jesus drinks something? After he resurrected? Nope. It's on the cross. They take a sprig of hyssop, which, by the way, Hyssop is what they use in Exodus 12 to put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost of the tombstone. They take a sponge on a piece of a sprig of hyssop, which is how they put the blood of the lamb on Passover doors in Egypt, and they take spoiled wine and they hold it up to Jesus' lips and he drinks. And remember, he said, I thirst. Mother Teresa made that phrase even more famous where she says what Jesus thirsts for is for souls. They hold that up to his lips. He drinks. And Jesus says, anybody know what he says? It is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. Now here's the crazy thing. I know I've said that like 18 times. Here's the crazy thing. <laughs> What people usually think is they think, well, the work of our redemption is finished. Jesus is going to die now, and the work of redemption is finished. The problem is it's not. In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul says that if Christ died and did not rise to life, then you are still in your sins, and your faith is in vain. It can't be the work of our redemption that's finished. That can only happen with the resurrection. What's finished is the Last Supper. The fourth cup is the same name as this. 
When St. Jerome translates the Greek, tetelestai in the Latin, the way he translates it is he says, consumantum est. It is consummated. The fourth cup of the Jewish Passover is a cup of consummation. And Jesus drank that cup on the cross. Does he say on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? And if he does, why is he saying that? I love that you ask that. That's such a good question. So Jesus says on the cross, why have you forsaken me? I think that's in Matthew's gospel. Um, he does say that. Here's why. Um, so um, if you said to me, if you said, if I, if I invite you guys all over, my house isn't big enough. If we were going to have a video down here, we're like, hey, you know what? RCA has been intense. Father Brian's super emotional. Let's watch a movie and just take a break. And so next week, we're just going to watch a movie. I want you all to come to, to the church. We're going to watch a movie. And you said, Father, FB, what movie? And I said, may the force be with you. Right? You would know what that is. So Jesus says... Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I know movie lines. The Jews knew the Old Testament scriptures. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is the first line of Psalm 22. And if you read that psalm, that psalm is a prophecy of the crucifixion. That psalm will talk about a, a figure who is suffering, who... Um, has his hands and his feet. Let me just read it to you. Psalm 22. Um, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Um, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but you find, but I find no rest. You go through the psalm, and it's a horrible suffering, and so I'm not going to read all of it, but a couple highlights. Verse seven: All who see me mock at me; they make mouths at me; they wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord; let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for his, he delights in him. It's almost exactly what the Jewish priests say to Jesus on the cross. It sounds like a beginning of despair. I'm in darkness, my God. And the really cool thing about the psalm is the psalm is a very dark moment, but it turns to faith and hope. Um, really quick in verse, um, verse 16 of Psalm 22. Dogs are round about me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That is exactly what happened at the crucifixion. And the cool thing is that Jesus, what rabbis would do in the time of Christ, is they would quote just one line of scripture, and it would evoke a whole scene. And Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, is showing us that this is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. And what's so cool... Some Christians will say when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
They say God abandoned Jesus because he took sin on himself and he was so evil God couldn't even look at him. That's really bad theology. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows that Jesus is not sin himself. The language in 2 Corinthians 5 where it says that Jesus became sin for us is the language of a Holocaust offering in the temple. He's a sin offering. That's, that's what Jesus says on the cross. He doesn't actually become sinful. Jesus didn't commit any sins. But the psalm, what it's showing us is that even in Jesus' darkness, he hopes. And he trusts in God. And so I would encourage you to go, go read that. When you get a moment, go read Psalm 22 tonight before you go to bed. You will be blown away. That psalm is written, how long is David before Jesus? Like a thousand, a thousand years? I have to look it up. I'm getting so rusty. When you become a pastor, you don't get to read books all day. Um, does that answer it, though? Yeah. That's what it's about. So the crucifixion and the Last Supper are the same thing. And what Catholics believe, brothers and sisters, this is everything. So we're going to hit this next week, and maybe we'll end a little with a little Q&A time tonight, which never happens. Um, to worship God, this is why Catholics, though, we're going to hit this next week, the reason Catholics don't just change things up, do you ever wonder, like, Catholics do the same thing every week? Can we ever, like, kind of change it up? To worship God is not to have a creative service where you feel good. The worship of God, the perfect worship of God, is not something you and I come up with. The perfect worship of God was the moment that his son died on a cross in perfect faith, hope, and love. What happens is that through the Eucharist, the giving of Jesus' body in a sacrifice, Pope Benedict talks about this, is that through the Eucharist, you and I are inserted into the cross, as all seven sacraments do, and his worship is something we're drawn into. So at Mass, and we'll talk about this next time, at Mass, you'll hear the priest say every time, through him, with him, in him. Catholics believe, right, when we go to Mass, you guys are not passive observers just sitting back and watching me do something. What's happening is the Son of God offers his life on the cross for the redemption of the world. And all those who are members of his body, we are drawn into that one sacrifice for all. And so the priest doesn't just offer the Mass, all of us do. Which is why at our church, I, I made the decision to face East and to face the same direction as you. And what that's meant to say is I'm not there to show you the Eucharist. I'm not there to perform. I stand with you at the head of the, the body of Christ of this local church, this particular church. And all together, all of us are drawn into the one sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah, Michelle. It's a complex question. So the question is, why don't Protestants celebrate the Eucharist? This will be necessarily overly broad and dumbed down a little bit, but hopefully true. Um, a couple reasons. An interesting fact of history, 
Luther hated celebrating Mass. He talks about that. Um, interestingly enough, Luther believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Um, there's a famous uh, scene in the Reformation where I think Luther was debating with Zwingli, and they were debating about whether or not the Eucharist was just a symbol or the real thing. And they were fighting, and they couldn't resolve it. And apparently, Luther, as the story goes, I think there's a little bit of legend in here, but Luther took a knife and threw it into the table, slammed it in the table, and he said, hoc est enem corpus meum, which is the Latin, this is my body. And supposedly, I haven't seen it, supposedly that table has that phrase now carved into it, but I don't know. That might be a legend. So, but, so Luther believed in it, Calvin actually believed in it too, but over the years, a lot of times it happens, and I, I would say two things. One thing that happened, there's more to it than this. One thing that happens is, you know like when you get in a fight with somebody, you have a big falling out with someone, and like you separate from friend groups? So, for instance, like, this happens sometimes with lords, not too often, but like, I think of one couple who was engaged, and they broke off their engagement, and then they're like, well, I can't go to lords now, right? So I think part of what happened was after when the Reformation it was so polemical, it was such a big fight, there was such a big split, that Protestants started saying, well, the Eucharist, that's a Catholic thing. Right? And so we can't do that. Same way, by the way, Catholics, when Catholics don't know Scripture, one of the things we do that's like this is we say, oh, I can't know Scripture, that's a Protestant thing. Bullshit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Those things that we're supposed to have believe in all of this. So um, that's I think actually that might be the most actually historical thing that really happened. We've all done that, haven't you? When you got upset at someone, you're like, oh, this girl I used to date, she loves Gregory Allen Isaacoff, so I can't like him anymore because it reminds me of her. That's not true, by the way, of my life. Um, but we do that, right? I think something like that happened. The second thing that happened is that, and, and very honestly, a lot of Protestant churches, they'll have communion. And they know it's important, right? They see some of the things we talked about tonight. They're like, okay, why did Jesus, the last, on the night of Passover, the last night of his life, with all these incredible scriptural allusions, he did this? And so we should probably do this. And he, he commands us to do it in remembrance of him, in nemesis. But they don't really know how that can square with faith alone. And so, so for Protestants, they've tended, and again, this is an overly broad, overly simplified explanation, but I also think it is true. They don't know how other things can matter if this is all that matters. So I would say it's something like that. One more, if you, to be fair, some of you have looked at it from Protestant traditions. There's one more thing they would say. In all critique of, of Catholics, is it because they understand, the more educated ones, that we believe that this is the crucifixion? You'll hear sometimes Protestants say that if you go to a Catholic Mass, they re-crucify Jesus, which is just stupid and just pisses me off when people say that. It's kind of like when they say, you know, like, sometimes when, like, I'm, if I'm feisty and they say something rude, I just want to say, like, I'm sorry, I'd love to talk to you more, but I have to go worship Mary. I'll be back, you know. <laughs> it's because it's so dumb. I'm like, grow up. 
Um, so I am such a jerk. Um, but they'll say we re-crucified Jesus, right? Remember, once for all. Catholics don't believe the crucifixion happens more than once. It doesn't. It happens once in all of history, but that one moment is made mystically and sacramentally present to all ages. And it's crazy. So I never knew any of this, and I got lucky because I was in college at CU Boulder, of all places. A guy who's a parishioner here taught this to me and changed my life forever. And the crazy thing is I thought, like, I thought, like, our little Bible study, I'm like, man, we're, like, the only ones who know this. And it was kind of true. Like, a lot of Catholics don't know this. And then the more I've read over the years, the saints all know this. The theologians of the history of the church, they all know this. Let's read one quote, and then um, we'll see if there's any questions before you guys go. So, powerful stuff, but, like, like, is this just Father Brian? Is this just Lord's? Like, okay, the Didache is that first thing in bold after Scripture. So we don't, it's hard to date the Didache, but almost everyone assumes that it was written before at least half of the New Testament. Let no one eat and drink of your Eucharist, but those baptized in the name of the Lord. To this too, the saying of the Lord is applicable. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. On the Lord's own day, assemble in common to break bread and offer thanks, but first confess your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Right, this is within the first century while the apostles are living, and it's probably the most, um, it's the earliest document that's not in the New Testament. Ignatius of Antioch, right? Um, they abstain, and who's an early bishop of the church, who knew St. John the Apostle. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. You can read all these things. By the way, I could produce like a ton more of these. These are just some selections from the very early church. And again, one of the things I like to say about being a Catholic is like if you meet a modern pastor today, many of whom are better men than I am, who are more intelligent than I am, et cetera, et cetera, all the right caveats. They will say, if they say, what does it mean to be a Christian and follow Jesus? They'll say, get on your knees, admit you're a sinner, you'll be saved, you'll go to heaven. And we'll fight back and forth, and they'll be like, well, Romans 10.10, you know, like we said before, and I'll be like, arguing whatever other points. That's not what the early church says. When you read the early church, they talk about bishops, they talk about priests, they talk about the Eucharist, this is the way they talk. Okay, questions before we go? Yeah. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. You so, <laughs> good question. Um, it's Ash Wednesday. Is a week from today. We are going to have class still because we're so about far behind. At this, my mom has another magnet that says, God put me on this earth to do a certain number of things. At this point, I am so far behind, I will never die. Um, I feel that way every year in RCIA. We still have so much to cover. 
So we're still going to have class. You are more than welcome to go to Ash Wednesday services. Lent was invented for you. The very ancient church invented Lent for people who are becoming Catholic to prepare their souls to encounter Christ in the sacraments. It was meant for you, so you are more than welcome to go to that. Ash Wednesday services, you can't receive the Eucharist yet if you're not Catholic. Um, but you can receive ashes. And what the ashes are, the, the priest or the minister, whoever it is, will take some ashes, they'll make a cross on your forehead, and they'll, they'll say, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the point is, is like, you're going to die someday? <laughs> Repent of your sins. Do the thing that matters. Don't live for wealth or pleasure or power. Live for God. And, for, and Ash Wednesday is not an... Catholics don't have to go to Mass on Ash Wednesday, but pretty much everybody does. It's like the most packed day of the year. And I, I think the reason why is because all of us know that we need to repent of our sins. And we all feel that. Right? Every one of us feels like, man, like I just... I need to be a better Christian. I need to follow God better. So, so that's next Wednesday. We will still have class... Um, if you would prefer to go to class or to mass or class, it's fine. I will be teaching just because we have got ground to cover. Yeah, it's maybe even a little more because you have you have mass, but then you have at the end you have ashes, so it's like a second communion line, and so it goes a little bit longer. Um, probably. So we have we have eight a.m., we have noon, and we have six. So I'm obviously not seeing the six because I'll be here. But so if you get here and the parking lot is crowded, that's why. Yeah, Bree. As a cradle, not me, but speaking of someone, as a cradle Catholic, mm -hmm. at what age do you learn about Ash Wednesday and Lent and all of that? You're just raised in it, and so a lot of Catholics need it. This is why I tell every Catholic they need to come to our CIA. So some learn better, and as they grow up, their families teach them, and they learn about it, and they embrace it, which is amazing. That's the best tool there is. So when you have kids, teach your kids, right? But Catholicism, as we've all seen, Catholicism is an adult faith. It's intellectually rich. It's complex. It's beautiful. So that's why I always say at this class, every year I'm like, every adult Catholic should go through RCIA, and they will understand their faith far, far better. And when you guys, if, you, if you're becoming Catholic, you're coming to the church, you will know the faith better than the overwhelming majority of Catholics. And if you screw it up, <laughs> I will find you, and I will beat you up. Okay, other questions? Yeah, Luke. Does it matter if you receive just the body but not the blood, or vice versa, the blood and not the body? No, you can receive. So what the church teaches is that one, like, um, really, really quick thing is, like, the sacraments are they are signs but they're more than signs so the difference would be like imagine a stop sign I'm not going to draw it for time's sake if you see a stop sign it's just a sign that tells you to stop and that would be just a symbol or a sign um, so the, the blood is a more or the wine is a more full sign of the blood than the bread is but we teach that the bread and the wine both contain both so the fullness of Jesus himself is in both but it's a more full sign but it's more than a sign, and that's really, that's why I would say, so stop sign is just a sign tells you to stop, you know that, and you stop. But the, the Catholic understanding of sacraments is not that. The Catholic understanding of sacraments is that not only is it a stop sign, but it's a stop sign on a giant concrete roadblock, and it will stop you. It doesn't, it's not just a sign telling you to stop, it's that as well. 
it's also something that stops you. So it's not, it is a symbol of the blood, and it is the blood. Does that make sense? Yep. So are you ever going to go through the parts of the Eucharist that you do on there? Uh, I mean, basically the breaking of the bread. Yep. The joining of the bread and the cup. Yep. The, and, the, and the rising, raising of the cup. So we're, significant? Yeah, so what we will do, everyone's favorite class of the year, except for me, I don't, I mean, like, I, practicals are fine. I like theology, but everybody else doesn't. Um, may, probably not next week, probably in two weeks what we'll do. We'll go upstairs for class. And what we'll do is we will, I wish, we'll talk about vestments. We'll talk about the altar, all the symbols. We'll bring out chalices. We'll explain all the different parts. I, I agree with you. I love the theology portion of it. it it's very mentally don't lie to me. No, no, no. I like it. I've been buying all the books. Thank you. And but 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 when I when I was when it was explained to me, yep. I mean, a lot of times you're sitting there in mass, right? Yep. You don't have an explanation as to what is going on. Yep. And so we're, we're watching you, and it wasn't until I came across something on EWTN where one of the fathers explained, explained all that, all yeah. of that that. You know, the significance of what you were doing came yep. across. Yeah. Yep. Do anything else? I was just affirming that statement. <laughs> um, but quickly, we want, we're totally over time, but just the prayer fasting, all of giving, and what to do during that. Thank you. Really, very, very quick. Yeah. Matthew chapter 6 is the central teaching of Jesus on what it means to be a Christian. In Matthew 6, he gives us three things prayer, fasting, almsgiving. Um, Lent to prepare to encounter Jesus in the sacraments, you should choose one thing from each of those three. So you should do something to help you pray more frequently and more deeply. It shouldn't be a huge thing, but just a small thing. You should fast from something. It can be, you can give up something, right? The famous thing is people give up chocolate for Lent. That's totally lame. Don't do that unless you're a chocolate addict. Um, but give up something. I, um, I was telling Bree, like one year I gave up radio in my car. Give up something. And so you deny yourself. You say no, you take the focus off yourself. And then you put the focus on God by growing in prayer. Right? The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything you've got. That's prayer. It's a way to grow towards that. You deny yourself, you turn to God. And then almsgiving means giving money to the poor. And in the New Testament, that's the primary way that we love our neighbor as ourself. So these three are in Matthew chapter 6. Those are the three things the church recommends to all Catholics during Lent. So I encourage you to that. Don't just cut out something negative. Grow in love for God and for your neighbor. So prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Is that good? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Not, okay, going back to what we talked about earlier today and not sound too harsh, but wouldn't giving up radio in your car be selfish or not? To like fast from that? I don't think so. It's it's all about love. And so if we, we we can do good things and like, you know, if you give up chocolate, that's fine. You like but like I was telling Bree, um, if you give up chocolate, if the point is to have a size smaller jeans, that's not the point of Lent. If that happens to you, great. Happy for you. That's not it. It's about love. And so turning away from myself, and so 
To love someone oftentimes takes on the language of sacrifice, right? If you love someone, you can say it all you want when you have a great feeling about it. But Father Gronsky would always say, you know you love someone not when you feel good around them, but when you're willing to sacrifice for them. So the way you love your spouse is not just merely because you, feel, you made out and it felt amazing and you're like, oh, butterflies, right? Which this is how celibates think. We're like, oh, lay people can like make out and it's like, oh. <laughs> That's how love. Love is when you're like, I love you so much, I will give up the things I would rather do because I love you more. So love takes on the language of sacrifice oftentimes. Okay, get out of here. I will hang around if people have more questions. All right, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, never shall, world without end. All right. Thanks, everybody.